Hey, you're listening to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. While the COVID-19 crisis drags on, and as the U.S. national security state drums up its new war on domestic terror, it's important to pay attention to the key areas where both overlap, and without a doubt, one of the main overlaps is the way they are both being used to rapidly advance and escalate the U.S.'s existing surveillance state. With COVID-19, the rise in the collection and use of biometrics as well as the mass digitalization of everyday life have created a world that is more easily surveilled than ever before. The explosive growth of the national security surveillance state has empowered its technocrats, and these perceived successes will inevitably fuel the further growth of the surveillance state, especially its artificial intelligence components. In the case of the war on domestic terror, long-standing efforts to target encryption and other privacy protections through congressional legislation are advancing alongside other troubling trends such as law enforcement's rapidly increasing use of surveillance technology, including those with predictive policing capabilities, better known as pre-crime. To discuss this and more, I am joined today by Derek Brose. Derek is a journalist, activist, and speaker that writes for The Last American Vagabond and his own site, The Conscious Resistance. He has spent years covering the progression of surveillance in the U.S., particularly along the U.S.-Mexican border, and is also well known for his focus on solutions, having authored books like How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State, and also having recently hosted a solutions-focused summit called The Greater Reset, which was launched in response to the World Economic Forum's annual meeting late last month. Brose's recent work at The Last American Vagabond is focused on the intersection of law enforcement and surveillance, specifically the recent spike in law enforcement's use of facial recognition software. So thanks for joining me today on Unlimited Hangout, Derek. How's it going? Hey, thank you for having me, Whitney. I appreciate it. Anytime. Glad to finally have you on. So to start off, uh, one of your more recent articles mentioned how the events of January 6th, the so-called raid uh, on the Capitol, produced a spike in U.S. police departments contracting with or using facial recognition software, specifically the software of a company called Clearview AI. So Clearview AI may be known to some listeners, but for those who may not know them, uh, would you mind describing a little bit about who uh, or what Clearview AI is and why their partnership with U.S. law enforcement poses such a major threat to privacy? Yeah, absolutely. So Clearview is a name that is probably going to become increasingly important and relevant to those of us who are involved in surveillance state research and digital technology research, particularly as it pertains to facial recognition, because Clearview is a company that has been growing in recent years. They've been amassing, like like other companies, they're not the only one in this industry, of course, but they're one of the major companies that is amassing this huge facial recognition database that they are working with law enforcement to share with law enforcement. So it's a private company that has used some, you know, some different kind of tactics that aren't technically illegal at the moment for gathering what are called face prints, uh, you know, our, our face gathered by facial recognition cameras, but they are definitely contributing whether legal or not towards the uh, loss of further privacy and the increase of surveillance and uh, clear views currently facing some lawsuits over it. They have uh, their CEO, he's spoken out about this and basically said recently that they have 26% increase in the use of law enforcement, law enforcement using their technology. So about one fourth of the U.S., you know, the U.S. police departments are using this technology already. And I expect those numbers will rise. And as you were kind of saying that I covered in this article, after the, the protest or whatever you want to call it at the Capitol, Clearview's already saying, you know, they're going to to get more clients. We know Miami Police Department. Uh, we know that they've worked with the FBI, Alabama. You know, there's just different states around the U.S. that are starting to adopt it and pick it up. And 
Clearview is definitely important, I think, to understand because, as I mentioned, there have been uh, kind of in the in the rearview mirror the last two years, people who've been paying attention, like the New York Times even wrote about it, calling it the potential end of privacy as we know it. So if the New York Times is even acknowledging it, then it's something we should pay attention to because usually you know they're not really one to pay attention to these kinds of things. They they like to talk about the police state or the surveillance state in China, but they, you know, turn a blind eye typically to what the US is doing. Unless it, you know, in the last four years it's been helpful to use it against Trump. But other than that, they sort of shy away from it. Uh, so Clearview is actually already facing a lawsuit from the American Civil Liberties Union, and particularly it's in Illinois because Illinois is one of the few U.S. states that actually has uh, what is called a Biometric Information Privacy Act, and it prohibits capturing individuals' biometric, you know, whether they're face print, thumbprint, retina, etc. Uh, also, people need to understand biometrics includes things like your gait, gait detection, which is just, you know, the way you walk. Uh, so all of that information is already being gathered by some companies and by various software companies that exist that are partnering with law enforcement, but Illinois is the only one that has a law that says you have to give notice and consent from an individual. You can't just kind of scoop up people's faces just because they're walking around in public. So the ACLU has sued them in the state of Illinois, and that could be eventually, you know, depending on where it goes, it could be a big case as far as setting a precedent for if, if the court does rule in favor of the ACLU and against Clearview, then it could set some precedent for how these situations are going to be dealt with because much of the digital kind of panopticon and in, in my experience the last 10 years, I've realized that it's, it's really because we're in this constantly evolving era of new digital technology, new forms of surveillance that there aren't, there aren't any sort of regulations or even guidance on how they should be used. And like my personal views outside of journalism, I don't really want government involvement, but I guess the point here is that the people aren't informed Hey, you're being your information is being gathered and, and taken all these different ways. You know, many people when they first started using social media in the last decade or so weren't aware of how Facebook was working and how much information was being stored on them. And now there's much more awareness about that. And people can, I guess we could argue at least, well, they know. So if they continue to operate, at least they're, you know, they're informed about it. But with a lot of these technologies, they're so new and they're the people hardly know about them. You know, the private industry knows about them, the governments that are contracting with them know about these different types of technology but the people are often sort of the last ones to realize that their privacy is under threat and that you know if there's not i don't know if there's just if there's not an awareness i think there can be an awareness without necessarily the government getting involved i don't know if that will fix things anyways but if there's not even the awareness that this thing is happening that these kinds of things are happening then it's hard for people to kind of push back you know one example i'll give is on this sort of connected to facial recognition is here in Mexico where I'm at, there was uh, a, a store I saw in one of the cities I visited where people were, they were being asked to look at this camera to, you know, do a temperature check as they walked in. But again, because particularly Mexico, this technology is very new. A lot of people don't really know much about it and they don't ask too many questions about it. I don't know which company was operating that, but theoretically the company that was scanning people's faces on the surface just to get their temperature and then showing green if they're good, red if they're, you know, they got a temperature, if they're too high of temperature. That company, because there is no awareness, there's no limitations, they could also and more than likely are also storing those facial print, those face prints that they're gathering. You know, I don't think they're just taking a snap photo and then, okay, flashing green and that's the end of it. The way these companies often work, my guess is that they would be storing each of those faces and then creating their own database, which then they could use to 
launch a company sort of like Clearview and, and continue to profit or maybe outsource that information to some other company or, or entity like uh, law enforcement that might want that information, but that wouldn't be able to get it from people typically. You know, most people wouldn't just let a cop walk up to them and scan their face. Right. But if they want to go in the mall and they're like, hey, if you want to get in the mall, you got to do your temperature scan. People don't really, you know, think about it. So Clearview is is sort of, a, I think, a, a, a current name that, as I said, will be important, but it's really the larger picture that has been emerging as it relates to facial recognition that I think people need to be concerned about. And of course, Trump has just set the stage for now Biden to expand it. Well, one thing that I think that's really um, important about Clearview AI is that it has a big connection to Peter Thiel, which of course, you know, is something that we find with a lot of these um, national security state private surveillance contractors are Thiel ties. Uh, so like, you know, Clearview AI is, is one example that has a lot of links to to Thiel through, um, and, and I, and I think because of Thiel's ties to Trump, that's really the only reason Clearview AI, uh, really got, uh, well investigated in terms of who's behind it and what their politics are and things like that. Um, but, um, you know, Thiel is the guy that runs Palantir, for example, you know, the data mining firm that contracts to all these intelligence agencies. And then you have, um, another Thiel protege, um, Palmer Lucky, who's the guy that founded the, the virtual reality system Oculus Rift and used to work for Facebook. He has a military contractor that's doing a lot of the surveillance stuff on the, um, on the border wall. But it's really interesting when you look at all these different Thiel connected companies, you see sort of these recurring, um, uh, they're sort of occupying um, related niches, I guess you could say, whether it's with the military or law enforcement specifically. And when you look at the politics of people like uh, Peter Thiel and the Clearview AI CEO and people like that, it's really um, alarming because, you know, uh, the person they look to is this Minchus Moldbug guy, this Curtis Yarvin uh, character um, and who basically argues that democracy um, and, fr and freedom are like incompatible. There needs to basically be a, 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 a dictatorship, uh, an absolute monarchy established and things like that. That's sort of, you know, um, built around. Is that the guy that, that uh, he has, what'd you say his name was? Min uh, Curtis Yarvin or Minchus Moldbug. Yeah. Yeah. He's the guy who kind of like his writing ended up influencing what they were in the very early days of the all right, I guess they were calling it the neo reactionaries uh, and yeah, or the dark enlightenment, but it also yeah, has a exactly. lot of ties to a lot of these uh, influencers and, in, and I guess that sphere, you could say like Eric Weinstein, for example, um, on, of the intellectual dark web and whatever, you know, works for Peter Thiel, um, Jeff Gesia, who's a big, uh, I guess you could say power broker, I guess, within like the alt-right media scene, uh, connected, you know, th uh, Thiel people to, uh, people like Mike Cernovich, uh, that weave blogger guy and, you know, a lot of names that became pretty prominent during the 2016 election in particular. Um, and, you know, of course, in the Trump administration, Peter Thiel had a really prominent role specifically in the transition team, um, shaping the Pentagon. Palantir left the Trump administration with tons of contracts with the military, whereas they'd mostly been a contractor with U.S. intelligence agencies before. Now their ties with the military have grown uh, exponentially. And then you have Anderil, uh basically taking over the role of other Silicon Valley giants like Google uh, for the Project Maven AI drone bombing uh, program and stuff like that. And they're, you know, involved in a lot of the uh, uh, surveillance um, you know, personless surveillance that's all done by AI and machines and stuff like that. So a lot of these um, 
you know, sort of technocracy surveillance companies that uh, work specifically with the U.S. national security state and talk about the importance of, you know, beating China and America first and all of this stuff. They all tend to, you know, be all tied up with the, the Peter Thiel network. And that's really alarming, too, because if you look at Peter Thiel, right, and how he started Palantir, he and Alex Karp, who created Palantir, uh, got were basically trying uh, to recreate, you know, um, Iran Iran-Contra era uh, main course and continuity of government surveillance programs uh, that didn't manage to get off the ground uh, and went, you know, to the architects of those programs, like I, people that were charged in Iran-Contra, neocons and stuff like that, trying to get, um, you know, their advice on how to set up Palantir connections or or funding. And one of the main people uh, shuffling them around these these various, you know, neocon contacts was Richard Pearl. Um, which is, you know, pretty significant. So I really view, you know, even though the Peter Thiel crowd likes to talk about how they're libertarian or alt-right or, or whatever, it's important to remember that these people really got their start if you go back far enough from the neocons themselves, which, you know, they, they like to publicly say they don't like, but they're increasingly, they increasingly have a lot more in common than different. Yeah, and I want to add to that just because you covered so much important information there that, you know, on top of that, the Palantir has, of course, been... Uh, influential and a part of the whole COVID-19 recovery, the COVID-19 fight since like last spring, as I know that you wrote about and others have talked about and, and that Teal has been coming back up now and Palantir has been coming back up in the last couple of days because of this, you know, the re-announcement to, or the, I guess the kind of continuing announcements of Palantir's involvement. And then of course, uh, Alexander Karp, his name popping up. So it's, it's all the same sort of web of people. And I, and I think that is interesting. Like you said, that the New York Times probably did report on it because only because of the con- the sort of tangential connections to Trump. Yeah, I mean, th- stuff was so politicized anyway, um, you know, over the last four years. But I think the fact that they could, you know, reliably tie it to some, you know, alt-right figures that people in, in that particular media sphere love to hate on, you know, or you can bring them up for anything at, you know, uh, as reputational damage or whatever. I mean, those stories, they consistently gravitated towards those type of stories um, when they were around. But a lot of things that were tied to, you know, like other shady characters, um, you know, didn't get as much uh, play in mainstream media. But um, anything that served the um, the orange man bad narrative, uh, you know, the the black and black and white narrative about U.S. politics, you know, usually usually made it through, but, uh, it, it definitely helps to, to know the, about the Thiel connection. So, you know, for whatever the motivation was behind those investigations, I'm glad they happened. Um, even if it, you know, wasn't done in like the best way possible. Right. So, um, but going beyond that, you know, I brought it up a couple times, um, in relation to some of these steel companies, but, um, you know, you, you've talked a bit about, how, um, you know, uh, Trump's, uh, how a lot of people were saying Trump was fighting against like, right, the deep state, the surveillance state and all of that. But in reality, you know, his decision to make the, the, the much talked about wall on the US Mexico border basically became this, this really crazy, uh, virtual surveillance wall. Um, and so since you yourself have been crossing that border, uh, uh, a lot recently, I guess you could say, and you've also been writing about the issue, um, how did things uh, change under Trump in terms of, of that, virtual surveillance wall and do you expect those policies to continue under biden yeah so i i i have been crossing the border since last march and i just want to say side note to anybody who has heard anybody in the u.s or mexico has heard that the borders are closed that's been a lie the whole time for the last year so you know the borders have remained open at least while you're driving um but 
as soon as Trump came into office, you know, he started he, he was already talking his rhetoric before he came into office uh, about building the wall. And then he came in, you know, it was like his he's he's in a rush to get it done. And honestly, he didn't really get it done there. I think there would have been some sections of the physical wall done. But I pretty early on felt like it was kind of a smokescreen for uh, what they were calling a smart wall. I've heard it referenced as a smart wall, a biometric wall, a virtual wall. The point is that instead of being a actual physical barrier, that it would involve the installation of potentially hundreds of thousands, if not millions of new facial recognition cameras across the northern and southern borders, not just, you know, down here by Mexico, but all around the country of the U.S. And along with that, the installation of more license plate reader cameras, which are these super high definition cameras that can they can read someone's license plate from they're according to some documents up to a mile away and then that gets fed into a system and if there's like what they call hot lists you know if they're looking for people if anybody's cars or a license plate has been flagged and it pops up on a hot list then it would alert you know whoever's uh, watching that database and so you got facial recognition license plate readers and other forms of course drones bringing more drones and whenever trump first came in office and he was pushing the whole idea of the physical border one of the first bills that actually got put through i think in 2017, it never passed, but it was one of the first sort of like, here's how we're going to build the wall uh, bill. And I wrote an article about it back then. And essentially, it was sort of being touted as a compromise between the Democrats and Trump. And they, that's when they first started talking about this idea of, okay, well, maybe it doesn't need to be a physical wall. Maybe we can compromise with Trump and, you know, we'll, we'll just make a, this virtual wall, this biometric wall. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, it had been supported by uh, Pelosi at one point. And yeah, I never kind of made it any further than some committees. But it was when I first started seeing those things, those bills, that I, I realized that where it was going and that eventually, you know, we would see the pushing for this virtual biometric wall. And one of the first things uh, now that Biden's in office, of course, like I said, Trump hasn't been able to fully complete his, uh, his wall while he was in office. So what was built of it was small pieces of physical wall, but he already started the expansion of uh, the facial recognition and other matters. Also, under the Trump administration, in the name of supposedly fighting illegal immigration, they started to give the Border Patrol more powers to take people's uh, laptops, take people's cell phones, and to review them. And that there's several lawsuits going on already. Uh, they've been going on for a couple of years now. In relation to this, because there have been journalists, there's, I know in one case, there was like a NASA engineer that got stopped. I think it's like an Iranian NASA engineer that's Iranian-American, but that was stopped and interrogated and, uh, you know, had their devices taken and never received them back. Or in the case that they do receive them back, you know, months down the line, they're, I, you know, I don't think any of us would trust those devices after they've been in the hands of the government like that. But, <laughs> yeah. No, so they've been working on this for some time. I actually I found this article. So the first time I wrote about it was October 2017, and it was a border wall approved by a House panel, including drones, DNA collection, biometric scans. So all of that has already started under the Trump administration. They, right. you know, they the Border Patrol has basically been giving more powers. You know, there was no actual law, or you know, people didn't get to vote on it, but their powers were expanded to include DNA collection of people who are detained at the border. So. You know, some people hear that and they're like, well, they just, I guess, assume that must mean illegal immigrants or criminals or whatever, but it could be anything. You know, you could, I, I actually was unfairly and unjustly detained at the border for about, you know, 30, 40 minutes. It was, it was, you know, just an annoying situation, but under their beliefs, they could have 
forcibly taken my DNA with the swab and added that to their database. Thankfully, they didn't. But if I had tried to fight it and, you know, scream something about my rights, according to the rule of law at the moment, the U.S. government, I have no rights. We have no rights in relation to that. So all of these things were expanded under the Trump administration. And I just there was such a blind spot for a lot of Trump supporters, especially those who see themselves as kind of enemies or opponents of the police state, who also were very much in support of Trump's immigration uh, rhetoric, who seemed just totally blind to how they were kind of welcoming the police state along the border and that it's just it's become further militarized now. And so that's what was done under the Trump administration. And then now as Biden's coming in office, they're kind of having that conversation. OK, well, how does Biden go forward? You know, we they, we want to address the immigration problem, but we don't want to take the Trump route. And so it's already being just put forward as the answer is the biometric wall to continue. It. And, and it's, it's already there in some pieces. But I imagine that it's just going to continue to expand in the coming you know years. It's just we will be at a point where there's Potentially, I don't. I mean, potentially, we could get to a point where there's predator drones. Right now, it's not armed drones, but maybe it could be in the future, if those, uh, you know, arguments are made. But at this point, we have drones flying across the southern and northern border. They can collect your DNA, and they think that's legal. They don't see it as a Fourth Amendment violation. They can take your devices and go through them if they have some reason to suspect you or you know an extremist or whatever. If you've been placed on some list, they said that they've been developing cameras that can not only read the license plate because <clears throat> the license plate cameras are the ones that when you're driving under like a tollway or anything like that and you see like a flash as you drive through it it's taking a quick picture and it does that for every vehicle so it's supposed to be taking a picture of your license plate and then like for instance if you're paying a toll then it looks it up okay this person has the the right tag or whatever so they're good and if not then it sends you a bill in the mail but they're also taking pictures of people's vehicles and some of the uh, cameras that the Border Patrol is using. The companies have bragged about being able to see the person sitting in the back seat from more than a mile away. So they're, I mean, if you get anywhere near the border, then you're already kind of giving up your privacy just by going over there. And then unfortunately, since 9-11, we've seen the expansion of what they call the Constitution-Free Zone. That is, again, the southern border, but all pretty much just around the whole perimeter of the U.S., and I think it was originally they said, oh, there's like a 25-mile constitution-free zone. There's like 50 miles. I think at this point it's 100 miles. And if you think about that, 100 miles from the border all around the country, there's a lot of cities that are within that. And yeah. that the Border Patrol considers constitution-free zones. Uh, well, I remember hearing that it was something like almost a third of the U.S. population lives within what is now considered this constitution-free zone around the border. So it really makes you wonder how much it's about, uh, you know – protecting uh, spying on the border surveilling the border or people or, or people that would be coming you know across the border and how much is it about domestic surveillance or seeing who's trying to leave and things like that people sort of only think about these walls so-called walls right in in sort of like one directional flows uh most of the time but the fact that they have this huge uh, I mean, the name is so crazy too, Constitution Free Zone, that, that they've expanded this so much to include such significant, you know, population centers around the U.S. under the guise of, you know, border security. I mean, it's pretty obvious that there's an ulterior motive in that sense, because it's obviously, <laughs> if you're going to make it that far inland and, and sort of scoop up that large portion of a population, of the U.S. population and in this, you know, virtual surveillance wall, <laughs> I mean, obviously yeah. there's there's something else <clears throat> something else to that. And what's interesting too, is that, um, you know, some of the companies that have been contracted there, like foreign, 
uh, foreign companies, uh, like a, a subsidiary of the Israeli weapons manufacturer Elbit Systems, is one of the big contractors for this for this virtual surveillance wall. So you know, it's just kind of uh, interesting to to point that out that it's not even like U.S. Um, you know, as far as the Constitution Free Zone thing, I just want to make the the point to those who are hearing this and maybe it's new to you, or even if you you've heard about it before, but just to kind of really make the reality concrete. Like if you live in one of the border towns already, I mean, you're pretty much already subjected to this. Like e- even just by the fact that, for example, the, the border town in Texas that I cross through often, Laredo, Texas, is, you know, there's border patrol agents that are all over the city because some of them live and work there. And, you know, a lot of the people I think, in my view, have been kind of propagandized to believe that like doing that job is, you know, they're patriotic and whatever. And they're, you know, I'm not saying that no Border Patrol agent has never helped anybody out or anything like that, of course, but I think that there's a lot of propaganda, as we know, that goes into the military and the law enforcement to convince people that, you know, they're they're doing good. And in the 9-11 area, we've seen the post, uh, the uh, if you see something, say something kind of mentality. So for the people who are already living in the border towns, in they're like right in those so-called constitution-free zones, I mean, from my experience, those cops basically, those cops, because you, you have the local cops, you got the state cops, then you got the Border Patrol ICE, all these entities just running around these cities and pretty much have free reign to do whatever the hell they want. And it's it's pretty scary. Yeah, totally. And um, well, with that being said, I want to I want to turn the, the discussion to something related. I mean, because it's still about biometrics, right? Yeah, but it sort of goes back to the, what we were first talking about with Clearview, you know, how they claim they have ownership over your face because it's uh, publicly available from places like uh, social media and things like this. And also DHS um, and the national security state has become increasingly interested in scraping uh, biometrics off of social media posts, but also trying to analyze them for, for other things as well. So, you know, as an example, the, the MITRE Corporation, which is a really shady uh, U.S. government intelligence contractor that you may have heard about before, because I've talked about them a little bit recently in some of my uh, uh, more recent articles. Um, <clears throat> but they, they develop technology where basically they can take your fingerprints if you have your hand raised or your palm exposed uh, on, on a picture or posted to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or whatever, you know, they can scrape that wow. off and then they can store your fingerprints. And so basically Clear- Clearview AI is basically doing the same for your face, right, for face prints. But how many of these are there, you know, um, and, and, you know, it's it's worth thinking about that stuff. Um, especially considering, you know, this we're ba- we're people are freely volunteering their information uh, to be used this way at this point um, without really considering the consequences. And, and I think that's we're really starting to get into dangerous territory with that, because even before COVID and all of this stuff back in the last half of 2019, when everyone was, you know, uh, there, there was all this uh, concern about mass shootings, and we have to prevent mass shootings before they can happen. There was a lot of discussion at the highest levels of the U.S. government about using social media posts, uh, using a predictive AI algorithm to see who may or may not commit a violent crime based on what they're posting on social media, which, you know, is totally insane because a lot of people go on social media to, like, invent and, you know, make statements they probably, they, they may not make offline, you know, so it doesn't necessarily translate into anything, right? But, I mean, they were talking about doing this. I mean, it was... uh being discussed with President Trump by people he was really close to, um, being promoted by uh, Ivanka uh, Kushner and Jared Kushner, right? So it's, uh, you know, it, it, it's definitely crazy that we're still uh, vo- voluntarily, you know, yeah. putting a lot of our 
our images and things like that um, out there sort of, you know, by continuing to participate in these corporate social media companies, not hold them accountable, you know, by really using them, you know, we're helping to, you know, we're giving them our data, we're helping uh, them imprison us. And we're not even, you know, it's social media, and we're not even, you know, using their platforms makes us less social, right? So it's like, what benefit are we even getting from these people? (laughs) Yeah, and, and you know it's 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 interesting because in 2020, right, the the, the documentary, uh, the social dilemma, was sort of mainstream and 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 reached a lot of people, and it seemed to kind of in the mainstream world wake up a lot of people to things that people like yourself and and me and others have been saying for years. I mean, we have studies going back um, that to like 2012 and 2013 showing like these problems with like Facebook and Instagram specifically separated from the internet, making people depressed and all those kinds of problems. But then you have, like you said, the sort of stealing your data, the spying, the monitoring. And there's just, I mean, there's just so many reasons for people to abandon them at this point. I I wanted to mention though, I actually wrote this article last uh, July, I think for uh, uh, Last American Vagabond for Ryan. And I just called it social credit scores are already here. And it was kind of based around, of course, the social credit score system we see in China already and how that's becoming more and more popularized as this discussion of smart cities is evolving. And uh, there was a report from this cybersecurity experts, Kaspersky, and they basically put out this this uh, document saying that 32% of adults between 25 to 34 have already had issues getting a mortgage or a loan or even a job because of their social media activity. And, you know, that's, I think, sort of common to people. Like they realize, okay, I should be careful to some degree of what I put on there. But this is even more than just like, okay, they looked you up on social media. This is specifically companies that are using social scoring systems is what they call them to determine whether or not you are trustworthy of a loan or this job or mortgage or whatever it may be and that they're being used by governments and businesses already. So, you know, this is just a quote from the report. It says, quote, based on these scores, systems make decisions for us or about us from travel destinations and the associated costs to whether we are allowed to access the service itself. And so they're basically saying that there's already over 10,000 people from 21 countries and potentially as high as one-fifth of people who are already being affected by this without realizing that their social media comp- their social media accounts are being wow. you know used by these various companies kind of like you're talking about and now they're selling that not only to the police and to whoever else but to uh you know companies who might want more information about their potential employees and and it's actually pretty alarming to me it's like wow okay this is even more of a reality like we don't even need them to have a government mandated kind of social credit system when you have it already being done where like you were mentioning that people are voluntarily doing this in a lot of a lot of cases and then just kind of not paying attention to how that information is being used against them so it's pretty alarming to see that it's happening already and this was last year so i'm sure this is just going to increase throughout this year well, one thing that a lot of people don't realize is just how valuable our data is, our, our, our data are to these people. Like a lot of these uh, technocratic companies and things like that couldn't operate or at least couldn't be profitable in the long term if they weren't depending on our data that a lot of time we're giving them for free. So I really think there needs to be like a, at some point, you know, a people driven push to sort of take control massively of the, of our data back from these people. Um, so we're not continuing to empower them because they've been openly admitting for years that data is the new oil. So imagine, you know, not even having to pay to pump oil out of the ground, right? To feel your, your business model or whatever that you're just being, you know, it's being given to you 
for free by by people right and you know a lot of the these people that run these silicon you know valley companies are really predatory and want to find ways to get to trick people into you know giving up more and more of their data all of the time so it's really um you know wild to think about in that sense and it also but it also underscores you know how much power you know we have in a sense over them and the fact that a lot of people aren't aware of how necessary this data is, specifically biometric data is to a lot of these companies. You know, I mean, going after um, their dependence on it in economic terms, like, you know, how they can use it and how they can profit from those things and, and how they obtain them, you know, maybe, you know, worth pursuing in addition to some uh, people-driven stuff. But, you know, just a, yeah, just a thought. That's a good way to, to think about it. I think that's a great way to think about it as far as, like, that they, in this case, like, those companies, the tech companies and social media companies that are just living off of our data, are they really are dependent to a large degree and that and that there's there's strength in that if we take advantage of that? Yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of things, I guess, uh, that that can be done. But, you know, that's a that's a small one, at least that, that might be able to <clears throat> to do something, because a lot of this technocratic stuff does have some weak points. If you if you think about it, um, you know, obviously, uh, well, I didn't mention this in your intro, but you've talked a lot about, um, you know, 5G over the years. And a lot of these, you know, AI surveillance systems or Internet of Things uh, based surveillance that they want to roll out. Uh, none of that can function without the 5G infrastructure. So I think it's uh, really interesting, you know, that we've seen mainstream media try and tie any criticism of 5G directly to a specific COVID-19 quote-unquote conspiracy theory about 5G towers causing COVID-19 as opposed to, you know, any of the other um, very valid criticisms that aren't controversial that you can make about that infrastructure. But I think that's because, you know, they're concerned about that issue specifically because if there ever was sort of a mass uh, opposition to 5G, not along terms of COVID, but along, you know, surveillance concerns, something that had, uh, you know, the possibility of sort of mainstream uh, adoption, I think that would really freak them out, because it basically, you know, is the foundational um, infrastructure of, um, you know, everything that they're a lot of the systems that they're trying to, to roll out. And a lot of that rollout, I mean, I think it's going to surprise people. Um, but a lot of that's going to start happening this year in big ways. I mean, it's already been going on, as I'm sure you know, um, for quite some time, but you have New York, uh, this year is going to make five smart cities in the state, um, including part of Manhattan. So, you know, we're definitely, um, entering a new, uh, phase of the fight against technocracy here. Yeah, and I want to add to that, like it's, uh, you know, it's it's been interesting to watch it happen because I put out my documentary for on 5G, the 5G Trojan Horse, which anybody who wants to fi- watch can find on my website for free. Uh, I put that out in September 2018, I think, or February, early February 2019. And I had a big focus on the smart city aspect because there has been some warnings for people paying attention about the concerns of privacy and you have, like you mentioned, New York's efforts to bring in some smart cities, but you also have in Toronto and Canada, they, you know, in a, a little town called Keyside, and and Google uh, parent company Alphabet, uh, were one of their side companies. Uh, can't remember. Sidewalk Labs. Sidewalk Labs, yeah, they have their own little kind of smart city experiment, and that that experiment has been plagued since the beginning with controversy with various people, officials leaving because they said like, hey, I was told that this was going to have some privacy built in and you know of course they find out that that's not the case and so <laughs> yeah we can already kind of see where this is headed and then just in, I'm actually working on an article exploring this a little bit deeper for the last American vagabond I, I'm sure you 
probably came across it just in the last couple of days, a report that uh, Nevada is now preparing to auction off various acreage in their state to tech companies. They're apparently working with one yeah. company that's called Blockchains LLC or something. And so this is like, you know, they're giving the power to the tech companies. It specifically said uh, the Las Vegas Review, they saw the um, the legislation beforehand and it basically said that these whoever these companies end up being, that they'll have the the power to levy taxes to create basically their own kind of like alternative governments. governments. Yeah. yeah, it's wild. It's, it's I mean, crazy to see. It's happening. a huge jump from what Citizens United to that, <laughs> isn't it? Uh, I mean, it's just really, um, you know, it's it, these days. There's a lot of crazy stories that fly around, but that one uh, should really stick in people's minds because this is also something. You know, this having companies make the government and become the government, it's really not that different than the World Economic Forum's push for stakeholder capitalism and public-private partnerships, which we've seen a huge increase in, in the uh, public use of those for things to combat COVID-19, allegedly, and things like that. I mean, there's really not a big difference there because, you know, the stakeholder capitalism, as, as the World Economic Forum describes it, is the merging of the private and public sectors, and that's what you'll get if this novel Nevada bill passes in, in that particular state um, is that the, the corporation is the government. So where is the difference between the private um, and, and public sector, especially when there's like, you know, uh, surveillance built into the whole infrastructure of their smart city. Um, and, you know, they will use their your AI to tailor your living experience and, and their particular, you know, um, I don't even want to call it a city. I got you know, uh, <laughs> prison camp. I don't know what's more appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it might, you know, look nice and be colorful like Google and Microsoft like to do. But, you know, you'll you'll be in prison. Just uh, really wild to see how far uh, a lot of this is, has progressed. So um, uh, towards the end of this episode, I, I wanted to, you know, ask you a question that everyone that works in this field, uh, specifically covering surveillance, gets asked. I'm sure you've heard like all the time. So, you know, people like to say, if you don't have anything to hide, government surveillance shouldn't bother you. So how do you personally respond to that argument? Yeah, that's definitely one of the probably the oldest cliches as far as privacy yeah. goes, right? And having done a pretty like a pretty good chunk of my work over the last 10 years is focused on surveillance, not really with the like any specific intention. I just kind of I'm always drawn to these stories and uh, I've dealt with it on the local level when I was living in Houston, helping expose cell phone surveillance uh, in the city of Houston, and then obviously talking about these bigger picture issues. And yeah, that's kind of a common refrain from some people like, okay, well, the Houston police got cell phone surveillance tools. Well, I'm not up to anything wrong, so I'm not worried about it, you know. And this is just, it's it's a cop out and it's just not accurate, especially with the various kinds, the just insane amount of forms of technology we have from the apps running in the background of your phone to, you know, the cameras that are outside on the streets and all, all the different forms. And I mentioned earlier, just as one example, the license plate reader cameras. And uh, I've done some articles about how these can be used to make hot lists. And I guess in its best version, the idea was, okay, the cops put known criminals license plate on hot lists and, you know, they know that they might be in a certain town or a certain area. And so they have this program running. And if their license plate reader camera happens to pick up one of these, these, uh, license plate, it triggers an alarm and they, you know, they're notified. That's like the best version. But in the worst versions that we've already seen, we've seen cops like 
one cop using it to monitor his wife because he thought she was cheating on him. Yeah. Uh, you know, going after like just I guess people they don't like, using it against informants, using it to try to manipulate people. And when you really start to think about all these different things, like you see, okay, well they can learn your religious history, you know, obviously your website history and things like that. And, and it really does create a profile of somebody. So even if you're somebody who's like, I'm super squeaky clean, I don't really have any secrets and I don't do anything illegal, so I'm not worried about it. You know, I think that when you re- when people really stop to think, okay, well, would you hand over your computer or your phone just to a complete stranger? Like, are you that comfortable that you really have nothing that you're, you know, it doesn't have to be anything illegal or anything. It could just be your personal preferences that you like to keep to yourself. And so I think when, when you push comes to shove that people do tend to care about privacy. I mean, some people truly don't, and I guess they just trust the government and they think it's all good or whatever. But I just feel like it's so disconnected because when you download the app, nobody wants to read the terms of service. So you're just like, yeah, I want right. to play with this face filter thing. I don't care what it does. Just let me see it so I can look like a cat. And they're not paying attention <laughs> that you know that the thing is like scanning their face and sending oh, it to some the stuff we do for cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it all comes back to cats. Uh, but you know, it's 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 that's what it that's like the real life version of it, right? That's the surveillance state, whether it's private private, public, private, or just straight up government surveillance. It's that, it's that simple. Sometimes it's, it's like you mentioned earlier, it's using Facebook still, it's using these different tools. It's, and you know, one of the things I've been trying to kind of move away from as far as my digital protection is, um, in the process of abandoning all Microsoft, like, you know, devices and, and kind of like yeah. operating systems, because I think that's, I've been able to get away from some other forms of surveillance and, and take measures in my own personal life. But I know that that's one area where I can expand. So I think at the end of the day, it's just up to each of us to kind of decide what level of privacy you want. And yeah, some people might say, Hey, I have nothing to hide. And so at certain levels, they're okay. Like they might be okay with information that I'm not okay with being, you know, out there, but then everybody has some kind of line, you know, and that might literally be just like, you don't want your privacy begins when you walk in your house. You don't think you have any privacy anywhere else and you don't expect that. That's fine. But we shouldn't use, you know, somebody who has little concern for privacy, we shouldn't use that as a like a, a sign that we need to abandon it. And then also you have the other kind of part of the equation, which is that much of people's acceptance of the surveillance state in the last 20 years is driven by fear and propaganda related to 9-11 and terrorism and now domestic extremism. And so if they can keep pumping that fear, then they can keep people acquiescing or even people just believing that, well, it's for the good of, you know, the country or it's for to keep me safe and all that stuff, which sometimes I forget people still think in those terms, you know, maybe I spend too much time in our own bubbles and I, I, but then I realize like, Oh wait, people still just generally trust. Some people do generally trust when the government says something and they buy into that. If you see something, say something culture, which now in the age of COVID and domestic extremism, we're really trying, we're really starting to see where that's going. Right. So I, I would, to, to that, uh, I would add that one other point that, that can be brought up to argue against this frequently used argument is just how all of these, um, not all, but a lot of the surveillance, um, applications being used by law enforcement and the new, in the national security state more broadly have this focus on pre-crime and, and predictive policing and things like that. So you may not have anything to hide now, but if you have, uh, for example, a group of preferences that this AI algorithm uh, determines predisposes you to uh, may predispose you to commit this crime or do this or do that. 
that's not allowed, you know, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> At that point, it doesn't matter about you having anything to hide in the in the present moment. What matters is, you know, what will the algorithm do? You don't really have uh, control over it at that point anymore. And really neither does the, do the people in the national security state or in law enforcement, they're, they're outsourcing that to this predictive uh, artificial intelligence algorithm. Uh, so at that point, you know, I think that's a real game changer because it doesn't have any necessarily have any uh, tie to anything that you would be hiding or not be hiding. It just generally, you know, if you have the wrong data, uh, if the wrong data is tied to your profile, uh, then you're, you know, at, at risk in theory of having your rights uh, unfairly trampled on um, and, and things like that. So I think that's, uh, you know, something that's worth adding to that discussion. I'll just add one more point to that before we move on. And, and, you know, you said about like the future and the algorithm, and that's absolutely important. But it's also important for everybody to remember that it's what you've done in the past, too, because, again, you might not think you have anything to hide, but there's probably something on social media somewhere that you could be embarrassed of or that taken in the wrong context could look bad. And, you know, these these companies that are storing the, this data or the NSA databases in Utah, wherever it's being stored, it's going to live forever in there. And they will be able to call back things that you said or did and they can, you know, go through it and search for keywords and see if you ever said this wrong thing phrase, wrong think phrase or whatever it might be. So that's another thing to remember as well is that the data that we're giving away, the posts that we're making and the information we're sharing, it's living on someone's servers and potentially down the line could be used against you as well. And that's the, the kind of other concern is, you know, it could be things you potentially do in the future with pre-crime, but it could be bringing up the past in, in like some new light. Because, I mean, we've seen with the way culture changes, something could be seen as perfectly okay this year and then in a couple of years it's being promoted as the most offensive thing and it's getting you fired or something like that. So, I mean, it's a lot of different ways that the things you've already put online as well as the things you might in the future can, you know, interfere with your life. Right. Totally. So, uh, to wrap up here, uh, you wrote a book called how to opt out of the technocratic state, um, which, you know, uh, was inspired by this, this political philosopher whose work, uh, actually I didn't really know about before, uh, you mentioned him in this context, right? But it's, uh, it's definitely interesting. So would you mind sharing a little bit about, uh, your book and some of the solutions contained therein? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so the book, uh, how to opt out of the technocratic state, I wrote it at the end of 2019 and I released it a year ago, January 31st, 2020. So, it became a lot more relevant sooner than I anticipated. Um, so obviously everything we've been talking about here, this has been a big part of my work and facial recognition has been a huge concern. Uh, we talked about Clearview and some other companies earlier. You know, people have been warning that we're watching democracy or just freedom of speech and just everything that I think most of us associate with a free life disappear or at least under the threat of disappearing because of this increasing surveillance state. And it ties in more than just surveillance, but the philosophy of technocracy, the idea of rule by experts and rule by uh, scientists and, and elitists, like we're seeing with the push for the World Economic Forum and like we've seen in the past with groups like the Bilderberg Group, et cetera. And of course, the kind of like basically deifying of people like Bill Gates and Fauci and others. So I realized that this was going to be important. And the philosophy that that you mentioned is from Samuel Konkin. He was an actor, activist, and a philosopher and writer. He died in 2004, but he was really active in the student movements of the 60s and the 70s in the U.S. And he ended up writing two books: um, 
outlining his philosophy that he called agorism, which just comes from the Greek word agora, and kind of described his ideal vision of a future. But what I think has always been, I guess, most kind of appealing to me is that it wasn't just sort of a pie in the sky, like airy fairy, all just philosophical theory with no practicality, you know, like no tangible things to get your hands on. It was very much a philosophy of solutions and of actions. And the whole method that Konkin believed was, okay, here's the future I envisioned, the Agora, this place where people can live freely and voluntary exchange and all these different great things. But how do you get there? And he, you know, refused to vote. He didn't see voting as effective as well as immoral with, you know, by participating in the system. And he also thought that the use of violence and uh, the initiation of violence, insurrection, uh, and trying to, you know, force people to be free or whatever, that that was, you know, not practical and immoral. And so he started to think of what what are the other options we have? You know, most people would say, well, if you're not voting, then you don't care, right? And then if you don't, you're not ready to overthrow the government or go storm the capital, then you're, you know, you don't care either. You must just be apathetic. And that's sometimes where people go. But with Konkin, he outlined what he called counter-economics, which was just this idea that if we could get more and more people to pull their money out of the state's tax system, as well as, you know, in the day and age we're living in, I think it applies both to corporations and the government, uh, but take our money and our resources away from them, whether that means finding ways not to pay taxes or, uh, you know, not like shopping with your voting with your dollar and, you know, taking some consideration to where you shop and who you're supporting with that. But also kind of geared towards the future, he saw this idea that, OK, as people start to pool their money and their resources, start to use alternative currencies, start to find ways to be independent of that system, rather than trying to vote them out or overthrow them, we compete directly with it. We simply, you know, the whole idea of building something better. And so he, in his books, goes into kind of his theory of how this could evolve and progress. And a lot of the things he predicted actually have come to pass. He died, as I said, in 2004, so he didn't even get to see like Facebook and social media and kind of this whole explosion of all this because he knew technology was going to play a liberating role as well as would be used, you know, against the people. And he's, he was envisioning, okay, so we need to use the black and gray markets essentially like if you can deal in cash or if you can deal in alternative currencies, do that. And the more people that we have doing that, the more resources we're draining from the state. And he envisioned that as our friends who are still living under the kind of control of the state or the matrix or whatever you want to call it, as they see more and more free communities or free agoras, as he called them, popping up and organizing in different parts of the world, that they would clearly say, hey, why are we still over here living in these smart cities and this poison food and whatever else and and start to vacate and try to create more communities and a flourishing of that. And he, of course, believed that eventually the state would try to stop this exodus of people. And in his terms, he believed a revolution was to survive that kind of last gasping breath from the state that if the people then prove that they can defend themselves and not only would that be like a kind of physical victory but that would be a moral victory that would indicate for example in this case that the united states government was no longer capable of you know kind of keeping the people under their boot and then he you know expected this mass just even further exodus of people and so he has his theories about it and i've really really just been drawn to it over the last years it's pretty much the lifestyle that i live and that i i try to, I don't use banks, I, you know, stay away from the tax system and, and do different things to try to keep myself out of their system and, and not under their boot and all those things. And so I've already been of that mind, but I recently started to think with the knowledge that I have of facial recognition, you know, everything else we've already talked about today, how do you do that in a world that is 
completely controlled like this? How do you be be a counter economist or an agorist or you know how do you opt out of the system when it's everywhere when it's just total police state surveillance techni technocratic control grid because you know that's one thing that I don't know if he foresaw and he or if he ever thought about or whatever. But I took some of his last remaining works. He had a third book that was never published, and uh, it was recently discovered by some friends of his who are still living. And I decided I wanted to put it into print, and I also took a lot of the ideas that he had kind of espoused in there, and I updated them and adapted them for the world that we're living in now. And so How to Opt Out of the Technocratic State is kind of a brief introduction to Konkin's work, and then the concept of freedom cells, of localized, decentralized organizing that I've been promoting for a couple of years. And it gets into asking these questions, so how do we... How, how are you going to opt out of the system or, you know, how do you avoid the tax man when you, you step out of your house and there's a biometric camera tracking you everywhere you go and, and trying to really wrestle with these, these questions. And like I said, this was before COVID. I released it just a couple of weeks before I think the first case was really announced like on the world scale. And then now I feel like I need to go back and update it and just simply add the word immunity passports in there somewhere. So it's even more <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I was talking about mandatory vaccinations and, and all these things, because that's another thing. It's not just the surveillance state, but how are you going to eat? How are you going to travel? How are you going to play? How are you going to live? If you don't, if you know for a fact you don't want to submit to these things and you don't want to submit to vaccinations or whatever it may be, and now the world we're seeing, we're, we're seeing what I was writing about last year. I was writing it kind of anticipation of like, you know, Agenda 2030 that we have maybe – a decade or so of these things building up and then it just became extremely relevant right away so uh people have been you know taking some inspiration from it i, I can share a couple of i guess practical tips like from it uh i i kind of developed this idea these these two strategies that i was terming exit and build or hold down the fort and there's a third one which is just called apathy is death and that just means you know if you're not going to do anything then basically you're kind of you're just waiting to die because we're watching this stuff get built up. And I know that you have a family and there's people out there who have kids and who have nieces and nephews or grandkids and who have plenty of reasons to care about where we're going. And, and so we really have to start making some practical decisions. So I talk a lot about how we interact with technology and, and first you have to learn what level of freedom and privacy you want. You know, if you can define that, what that looks like and, and also what is your red line? What are the lines that you're not willing to cross or that if somebody gets close to this line, then, you know, you need to make some moves or you need to act accordingly. You know, it's important to understand that first, because only when you understand what it is you're after, then can you act, you know, like adequately address that problem and kind of aim for that direction. So with that in mind, if you're in a situation, if somebody's in a situation where they're living in a city and maybe for one reason or another, they can't leave, like they don't have the resources to, they don't have, they don't know where to go, or maybe they don't want to go. And they just figure like, yeah, things are crazy where I'm living. It's getting rough out here, but I'm going to hold down the fort. I'm going to continue to kind of try to build a movement, spread awareness, you know, get off the grid and network with people I can't, can build freedom cells, et cetera. That's what we call holding down the fort, right? So for whatever reason it might be, it's just that you think that your current location is going to be the best bet for you to take on everything that we're facing. And the other strategy, which is what I started to do in the last year, is to exit and build. And the idea here is that if you feel like the place that you're in is unsalvageable or just, you know, if there's somewhere else that's more preferable, maybe because you think there's more opportunity for freedom elsewhere, and this could be a city over, a state over, or a country over like I did, that you decide the best 
option for you is to exit from that place and to build elsewhere. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't like the term kind of bugging out because I think it has the wrong like you know, connotation and sort of just imagery that pops up because I don't see this as like a running away. I think it's more of like just a strategic thing of realizing, Hey, there might be somewhere better for me to continue to survive and thrive. And whenever I talk about this one, I like to remind people that, you know, whatever authoritarian regime you think of, whether you're thinking Nazis, commies, left-wing authoritarians, right-wing authoritarians throughout history, there are people who see what's coming. They see what's on the horizon and they make moves and they get out and they avoid, you know, potentially death or destruction or whatever. And there are others who, for one reason or another, do not. And some of those people are dead and some of them survive. They live through tyranny though. And so I, I think that those of us who kind of see what's coming and don't think that the current areas we're in are going to be a good place to be or are, you know, able to to be helped, then the exit and build strategy might be, you know, more effective. And then of course, again, if you know what's coming and you simply choose to ignore it or act like it's going to go away or just out of fear you don't act, well, again, like that apathy is essentially a death sentence in, in my yeah. view. And so the book goes through a lot of these kind of practical ideas and and tries to really pose some questions and get people to think like I've been in my recent talks and interviews and stuff been trying to emphasize that I think we're at a point where we really need to stop thinking in terms of normalcy of what we would do under quote unquote normal conditions, whatever that means for you, because we're really facing something that is it, it's not just going to go away. It's, there's trillions of dollars invested into these these ideas, yeah. these concepts, systems, this momentum, the great reset, et cetera. It's not just going to disappear tomorrow and it's going to take some massive pushback and or people getting out of those systems because if you stay stay put then you won't be able to fly without this immunity passport you might not eventually be able to work without the vaccine you might not even be able to get your money out of the bank account and if you're dependent on those systems you are going to have to make hard choices and some of those choices might be well you know what I'm going to have to gamble. I didn't prepare, so I'm going to get that vaccine and I, I'll just hope and pray that I'm okay or whatever. And, you know, along with that, we mentioned the social credit scores earlier. We're also going to see and face real life situations where we have friends and family who will tell us, you know, I love you, I care about you, but I can't spend time with you anymore because you won't stop writing about these things or posting about these things. And my social credit score is going down just because I'm associated with you. So I love you, but I can't see you anymore. You know, if I, if I, if my score goes down any lower, I won't be able to go on vacation again, or I won't be able to get this loan or I won't be able to, whatever it may be. I mean, that is the potential world that we're facing that is kind of right in front of our faces. And if we don't take steps to figure out how does life look like outside of that system, then we're going to get caught inside it. Yeah, and I think we're really getting close to a point where there's going to be an event at some point in the next couple of years and really even maybe sooner where it's going to come down to, I mean, you're not going to be able to avoid making the choice of whether you opt out or not. I mean, you're going to have to make the choice at some point if you're going to opt out or not. I mean, we, we being able to passively glide through what's coming is, uh, like you were saying, totally impossible because what what the bigger agenda here is, it's not just to create this expansive surveillance state externally, but also move surveillance inside the human body. And COVID-19 has been used to advance that to a huge degree. And the vaccines are part of that because it's about creating a situation whereby in order to participate in society, you have to surrender personal sovereignty over your own body and, and take, you know, the mandated uh, injection, whatever it is. COVID-19 vaccine now, but, you know, going forward, you know, it's, it's precedent setting, um, what they're trying to do now. So, I mean, it, it, 
how soon that contains some sort of like internal surveillance, uh, you know, system that's like openly acknowledged. I mean, it could be a while, but we're already seeing talk of, of basically mandating uh, wearables, uh, biometric wearables for various things, not just for COVID-19. Uh, it's being funded by the U.S. government also to predict who is likely to have a uh, opioid uh, relapse um, to see who um, is likely to get COVID-19 later in the future. Um, and, you know, things like to, to tailor your diet to make sure you're eating more nutritiously based on uh, the wearable you're wearing and you having been DNA tested. You know, there's all these companies that have been popped up and a lot of them are getting government money to do that. And that's already a surveillance device that can listen to you and also record all these biometric signals from within your body. Um, that, I mean, that's obviously starting to cross the line, but of course the biggest line, um, will be when they try and make it, um, internal. And we're really not that far off from that because the technology exists and a lot of it has come from the U S military and is already commercialized and, uh, ready to go pretty much. Uh, there's one, the Profusa chip, uh, that some people may have heard about, um, is set to be approved in, I think, March. Uh, it's like a month, less than a month away now. Uh, crazy to think about. So, you know, it's definitely getting to a point where you're not going to be able to sit on the sidelines. You're either going to have to accept the stuff the state is pushing, or you're going to have to opt out. Um, and the more prepared you are, uh, the better you'll be able to see that challenge through if and when, uh, you decide to opt out. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, that's basically the whole reason I, I put that book out is just kind of, uh, trying to, you know, this is what I'm doing in my life. And if I can, kind of, you know, sound the alarms for anybody else and get anybody else to be even just a little bit more prepared, then I think that's kind of part of the goal that we're working on. Yeah, totally. Well, you and I share that goal. Well, thanks so much for uh, giving me an hour of your time, Derek. I really appreciate it. So before we sign off, uh, what some what are some of the things you're working on right now? Uh, where can people find your work and how can they support you? Yeah, thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. And of course, appreciate all the excellent journalism you continue to do. I've been reading, catching up on your stuff after taking a couple of weeks off. But uh, if anybody wants to find my work, it's the main place is just theconsciousresistance.com. If you want to sort of see more of like a bio on my background, you can go to derekbros.com. But as far as my journalism, consciousresistance.com. And then of course, I write for The Last American Vagabond. And as far as uh, upcoming projects, I'm working on another documentary series that will be out later this year. It's kind of a, a bigger project. Maybe as it gets closer to completion, I can come back and we can talk more about it. But it's called The Pyramid of Power, and it's going to be a 14-part uh, documentary series. Each episode is going to be about 17 to 25 minutes long or so, and just kind of looking at the economic system, the the big tech, you know, all the different pieces that you can imagine that are involved in kind of manipulating and deceiving the people of the world – and trying to take a, uh, you know, with my documentaries, I, I never see them as quote unquote conspiracy documentaries because like yourself, I stick to the hard facts and the information that we can prove. And a lot of times people don't even believe that because it's so crazy to them. <laughs> yeah. So I've really taken that same approach, like with my documentary on 5G and then I did a documentary on Epstein and on uh, the Finders cult, you know, I, I stuck with the facts and I really see it as like they're true crime documentaries because these are... These are, these are real information that's just not being covered. And so I'm kind of taking the same approach with this documentary series. You know, it's 
trying to answer the question of like, is there such a thing as this new world order? Is there some sort of organized planning going on with all these different systems? And so it's going to start with looking at each of them. And then of course, each episode is going to talk about solutions. And when it's completed, I hope to uh, release all 14 parts, like in, you know, one, one a week for until it's out. And I hope if I succeed at what I'm aiming for, it'll be done in a way that's very kind of a bingeable for the Netflix generation, you know, that it can be just easy to digest, like lots of, uh, you know, important information and all fact and, uh, you know, sourced and, and documented and everything, of course, but something that people can like, if they really get sucked in, they can just sit there and, and take it all in and see what kind of conclusions they come to. So that's going to be the big project I'm working on for this year. I do have a a uh, book project as well that I, like yourself, I'm trying to get to and <laughs> amongst everything else going on. <laughs> yeah, it's and, quite a challenge, huh? <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on in the world. And then, of course, like with what we were just talking about, like I'm, you know, I'm down in Mexico. I'm looking for land. So I'm also actively trying to live these strategies that I'm writing about and talking about. So that's, you know, kind of part of my my work as well. Right. And uh, then uh, one other thing we didn't get a, too much time to get into, but I do want to mention that the greater reset event that we just completed for anybody who hasn't heard, they can check it out at the greater reset.org. You know, we were calling it the greater reset activation because it was very much focused on not just like, here's another conference or virtual event to hear some talking heads, you know, share the same information you already know, or just to talk about the problems. But, you know, a six day event that, like you said earlier, was designed to mirror and counter the World Economic Forum getting together to discuss their next stage for their the Great Reset, you know, which they just did uh, in late January. And it was a huge success. I mean, we had hundreds of thousands of people watch it live from all around the world. I think we had over 50 different countries like checking in and we've got all the all the talks from everybody is available for free on the website. You know, we're not charging anything for it and we're making that publicly available. And because of the huge success for it and kind of this community, this international community that we're now seeing form around this of people who are actively like wanting tangible solutions, wanting to know more about how can they grow their own food, wanting to know more about alternative currencies, wanting to know more about how to protect themselves digitally. And we're trying to just keep that momentum going. So we are planning another event, uh, bo both like virtual and in-person event. Uh, in, uh, it'll be in-person in Mexico and as well as encouraging local watch parties because the reason that was important to us is because, as you know, a big part of the World Economic Forum agenda is making us get further and further entrenched into the digital world only and kind of losing our, I think, losing our humanity, losing our yeah. interaction, not being able to see people smile or you know, give people a, a hug or, you know, those kind of things. So we, we were encouraging people to have watch parties. And it was really, I mean, just for me, kind of humbling and inspiring because people are sending in pictures of watch parties from around the world. And of course, like you said, we're all obsessed with cats. So some people had pictures with them and their cats watching and <laughs> things like that. <laughs> no, it was just cool to see like this, like, People really actively saying, okay, this is what I'm going to do. I, you know, I just pulled my money out of the bank account. I'm about to, you know, taking tangible steps because I mean, for me, 2021 is about solutions more than ever. Like if we can't, it has to be, <laughs> it has to, yeah, it absolutely, it has to be because if we can't find tangible ways to help people or in our own lives and in, to try to inspire other people, then we're, we're just going to watch this happen. And, you know, we're only going to have ourselves to blame for not taking action. So it was really inspirational. And like I said, we are going to be hosting another event we found out the World Economic Forum is meeting, they're doing a two-day virtual event in April, and then they're actually, they were supposed to be meeting, having their official meeting in person in Singapore in late May. I think it might have just got delayed, but either way, we're going to do it anyways. We're going to have another five-day event, similar kind of uh, format, 
various speakers talking about different themes each day focused on solutions and encouraging people to track their progress. The hope is that like everybody who tuned in in January and who is plugged in and hearing about these ideas that we can continue the conversation with them. And by time we're having the next event in May, people can send in pictures of like the gardens they've been growing or the whatever things, whatever actions they've been awesome. taking, they can, sh they can kind of track that progress because I mean, it's just so important right now for us to, you know, I think the reason the event was successful and, and the reason that the response was so overwhelming is because people want solutions now more than ever. Like people are just like, what are we going to do? Okay. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm glad to know the information and obviously you and I both have spent countless hours doing deep dives and trying to report that information for people who want that information and who can digest it. And that is going to continue to be important. Like I will continue to do journalism. And at the same time, I want to make sure that I'm putting an extra effort into try to highlight various solutions that work, you know, because different things are going to work for different people in different environments and different needs. So mm -hmm. if we can just share the things that we find and that we come across and the awesome people that are out there that are working on solutions, then I think that there's, there's hope out there. So I'm going to be working on that as well over the next couple months. And, uh, you know, maybe we can get you involved because I know you have a lot of information to share and sure. could really bring something to the table. Awesome. Well, that's a, uh, that's great to hear and a really positive point to end a podcast on, which uh, doesn't normally happen with my podcast, so I'm glad this, <laughs> you know, <laughs> ended a little differently, maybe. Uh, so thanks, uh, thanks to everyone for, for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Unlimited Hangout and catch you next time.